Hello and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity. Today I have a great episode for you. Our guest is John Cutler, product evangelist and coach at Amplitude, the product analytics software company. He's also their head of product education. And as John will tell you himself, he is obsessed with what he calls the beautiful mess of product development, which is good because that is what today's episode is all about. Our very own Matt Cropper, a group product manager here at Intercom, sat down to chat with John about cross-functionality, why it's important to start together, work together, and finish together. John has brilliant insights and thoughts on everything from the relationship between product and sales to why when collaborating across teams, sometimes you have to just dance with it. It's a fantastic conversation. So let's head over to studio to Matt Cropper and John Cutler. John, you're very welcome to the show. Absolutely delighted to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Before we get into it, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about your journey up to this point. It's been a bit of a whirlwind, right? Like you've worked everywhere from like Viacom to Nickelodeon. <laughs> yeah, I did work at kids. Kids television is a lot of fun uh, to do that. So yeah, I'd be happy to, I mean, this spans a couple of decades now at the moment, but you know, I spent my my 20s playing music and trying to start various sort of weird gigs and ventures. You know, I had a bartending video game uh, that was published by Simon & Schuster. Actually, it was a commercial flop. Um, but still, actually, to this day, there is a German bar owner who keeps a Windows 95 machine going just to play this game to teach his bartenders. So, like, it lives on somehow. But, you know, I spent my 20s sort of doing the music thing and and when you live in New York City, actually, you know, if you're a musician, if you're doing stuff, you have to obviously make some money. And so I started picking up kind of freelance jobs at these kind of large places like Nickelodeon and Viacom, investment banks. Um, that was a crazy job being investment banks during the sort of first dot-com boom and bust. So you got to read all the, the investment papers as they came out. I kind of settled down as time went on and started to get increasingly you know, more focused on product management. And then through a series of, you know, ad tech and kind of what was called rich media at the moment, you know, trying to persuade people to buy things with interesting layouts for e-com. And then gradually kind of drifted into B2B SaaS <laughs> as I moved along as a UX researcher and product manager. So yeah, I'm the poster child of, I lucked out. Um, definitely a journey for me through all these paths. And then and now I'm at a company called Amplitude. And Amplitude, you know, focuses on helping teams build better products with product analytics and experimentation and feature flagging. And it's sort of a product nerd's dream job because I basically get to talk to teams all day. I think I spoke to 1,500 product people last year in workshops. So wow. um, I'm in the matrix right now, for lack of a better <laughs> phrase. <laughs> like uh, the one thing that I absolutely love about product management is that there are so many non-traditional routes to getting into it, right? Like, you know, if you think back to, you know, all of these roles that you kind of like had that were kind of outside of what we might now call product management. Are there any kind of like big lessons that you learned from that time of your life that help you now when you're thinking about product? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you've been stuck in a van with, you know, six other men driving around the United States with tempers flaring and you have to be on stage and then you have to clean up all the stuff and everyone's sort of Half the people are a mess anyway. So being, you know, I was the responsible person who would collect the money. 
afterwards. <laughs> you know, just as long as John has the money, that's okay. We'll be good. And I was sort of the de facto tour manager as things became a mess at various points. So you learn from that about collaborating with creative people and patience and how to, you know, what it means to be on a team. I'd say that a band is kind of a team through better, through worse as you're doing that. So that's one lesson of that type of teamwork. I think that, you know, I mentioned the bank thing was fascinating. I think just being exposed to how a lot of businesses work and the ups and downs of businesses was certainly foundational. And I mean, even to this day, I never take anything for granted. I was very excited that Amplitude IPO'd recently, but I'm always sort of counting my blessings because I just know it could all fall apart. Mm. as we do it. I, no, Amplitude is not going to fall apart, but you get what I'm saying. You, <laughs> you get a respect for you know, the, the markets and how things work. And then I would say that the work you know, at Nickelodeon and Viacom and things like that, I think one thing in particular, I remember working directly with Seema Zargami, who at the time was like the head of Nickelodeon, mm. in, in the hours leading up to a big all-front, what they call like an all-hands presentation. You know, they did these things called upfront which is when they pitch their whole new deck and stuff for the year. And just watching a leader like that work and her care and attention to communication, but she was there kind of getting coffee for everyone and just kind of hanging out just with the people doing PowerPoint, for lack of a better thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was also getting to work with those leaders was just really humbling. And you can see, well, the leadership is something. It's an absolute thing. And so I think that I'll always remember that moment, you know, just sitting in Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City before like the flaming lips were going to open up our annual upfront and Seema's there kind of tweaking the words on the slide <laughs> as we did it. But yeah, I don't know. Those are some things that come to mind. Uh, that, that's awesome. And like, you know, hearing you talk about, you know, working with creative folks and kind of like being around leaders that inspire you and stuff, kind of like my mind straight away goes to like your job title at the moment, product evangelist, Right. I'm wondering kind of like, what is product evangelism in your eyes? Like, is it the working with creative types? Is it the leadership thing? Is it a mix of all sorts? I'm really curious. Well, I think for me, product evangelism is mostly about communicating trusted expertise and communicating with the practitioners out there in the world. <laughs> and this takes various sorts. I mean, I, I don't know what Intercom does at the moment, but for example, a lot of companies have developer relations teams. And I sort of feel that that is a brand of product evangelism. You know, it's having a special set of expertise that lets you connect with the customers out in the world and think both about your product, but more broadly about the challenges of that particular role. And so at its core, product evangelism, yeah, it's about communication, advocacy for the product, advocating ways of working. I mean, one thing I like to say about Amplitude is once teams commit to a certain way of working, or at least commit to try to get there, we're a very natural point. So this will probably not make the salespeople at my company happy, but I say that I think the product does a really good job of selling itself once teams commit to a certain way of working. And so I think a lot of evangelists and de developer relations folks and other people, it's, it's basically the pairing of knowledge of the ecosystem, knowledge of the role, knowledge of the product, and then just genuinely wanting to help people. I would say that as my career progressed, you know, I went through a series of jobs that, you know, were challenging and I liked them, but I was always the person wanting to advocate for better ways of working, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, or, or I would always attract the change agents who wanted to try to change the org too. And so now I get to do that professionally. 
which is instead of being caught on the inside doing that. So it's, it's a real rush to be able to do that. That's incredible. And, you know, like I, I know a lot of, you know, from just seeing the stuff that you publish, you know, there's the kind of like North Star framework, you know, the talk you did on, you know, thinking big, working small, which actually really resonated with a bunch of folks here at Intercom. You know, one of our principles is, you know, think big, start small, learn fast, quite similar. There's a lot of overlap there. Like, is, you know, your role, does it have like a dual purpose to it, I guess? I'm guessing you do, you know, a bunch of one-to-one type stuff, but it sounds like as well that kind of idea of democratizing that knowledge and making it available for everyone is really important to you as well. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I have to, Amplitude has been so supportive. I mean, there's not many people that they'll just be like, yeah, just tweet whatever you want to tweet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm long past that needing the thing in my Twitter bio that says like, these are my opinions only. It's already a mess for me, right? I mean, it's, it's such an overlap with the company and the product and, and, and the space. So yeah, I, I think that's one thing that came to mind with that, that question in that direction, which is, you know, I, I do believe strongly in just giving and just putting stuff out there. And I also really have enjoyed being a full-time employee at companies and, and doing it or being very close to doing it and people doing it and sharing that information. You know, a lot of people, Twitter's a great example, you know, someone will say, yeah, but does anyone do that in the real world? And I kind of want to say, yeah, I just spoke to 20 of those teams in the last week. Yes, yes, this is really hard. (laughs) Mm. And some people do a good job of it. And here's what you can learn from it. So there is a bit of that democratizing information. I think it's, it's challenging to get the perspective from across the industry about how things really work sometimes. So I do my best. That's incredible. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, you know, one of the frequent conversations we have in the product team here at Intercom is, you know, are we doing enough to share what we're learning to kind of like help bring everyone along on the journey, that kind of thing. If, you know, someone's listening to this and, you know, they're wondering, hey, you know, what can I do within my own sphere of influence in my universe where I work around, you know, sharing that knowledge and kind of learning from others. Are there any kind of like pro tips that you've kind of shared with others before that would be useful for someone like that? Oh, I can first talk about all the mistakes I've made. <laughs> I mean, let's start with some of the mistakes, what, what not to do. The first thing is don't become identified with the way, you know? So mm. it's very easy to pigeonhole people in a company when they say, we got to do design sprints or we've got to use OKRs or we've got to be more data-driven. And it's very easy to marginalize that person in some ways. Like if you don't quite agree with them, it's very easy to put them in a box. And second of all, frankly, it's not great advocacy. You have to start with the why. You know, Mm -hmm. why does it matter for the business? Why does it matter for investors even? Why does it matter for the community or people on your team? And I was speaking with someone recently and they're like, oh, you know, no one in my company wants to try anything I'm talking about. And and I said, well, why does it matter to you? And they said, Mm -hmm. well, one, I'm bored. And two, I don't like seeing people around me who have creativity and that creativity is not being tapped into. Mm -hmm. And three, I really think we can do something amazing here as a business. And so I tried to nudge them towards, well, start there. You know, like those things are really important, engaging the creative problem solvers in the business, the impact for the business in the long term. How are you going to do it? You know, what are some ideas you have? So I think that that's, you know, that's the most critical tip is that don't, don't get 
caught up being the way person, you know, really try to focus on why this matters uh, for you when you're doing it. And I'd say that the second thing, I think a lot of change agents and system thinking types, they're a little bit hesitant about going in with a solution. And they really want other people to agree that it's a problem and agree with them and talk with them about it. And I got stuck in that a lot through my career where really, you know, when people say, bring me solutions, not problems, that's my kryptonite. Because I would mm. always say, well, why, how can I bring you solutions if we can't agree on what the problem is? <laughs> and it didn't quite compute to me until I saw some really good change agents that there is a nice, fine balance to walk there. You know, there's an ability to walk in and say, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I heard what you said at the quarterly meeting about how just important it is for this segment of customers to be successful. And it really got me curious about what we could do in product to impact that and I'd love to see X happen more. You know, I've thought of a couple options on ways we could do that, list them. But really important to me would be get a group of smart people together and, and think of some ideas ourselves. Like that's so much more graceful. <laughs> mm. And so I think that's, that's other things. I could go on and on about it because I've made all these mistakes um, and I still make them to this day, although fewer of them, I think. Uh, yeah. But yeah, being a change agent internally is is very difficult. I would end on that one thing. You have to get to peace with yourself first. Why is this important to you? Are you bored? Do you feel unappreciated? Do you feel like your expertise is not respected? That is hard stuff to grapple with, but you got to start there. <laughs> because if you can't come to peace with those things, everything you say is going to be tinged with that and people pick up on that. And you might as well lean into that, you know, if that's where you're going. So you have to, you have to connect with yourself first, I think is the final tip I would give. Uh, that really resonates with me. Absolutely. I'm curious, John, um, like you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, the idea of, you know, change agents for folks who are listening. I'm wondering, you know, what, what does that mean to you when you kind of say that? Yeah. And that kind of goes to getting to peace with yourself. I think that some people are dialed in, I think, to want to improve things. I, for example, am someone that's dialed into when I see anyone in the org struggling or having trouble, I zero in on that really quickly. You know, I want it for whatever reason. Everyone has our own histories about why we go into this, right? Mm. So I want to change that. But I would say that in general, when I say, you know, change agents to me are people who, for whatever reason, uh, become a catalyst for change in the organization or or, or want to help nudge things forward, or maybe want to advocate for other people who want to do that too. It's not just you. It's not just the change agent with their own agenda. Sometimes they're just people who naturally pick up on the energy of other people and want to help that happen. So yeah, it's a big topic. I think that change agents, even maybe not the right word, it's just someone predisposed to kind of wanting to nudge things forward. I think we're all change agents at something in what we're doing somewhere. Um, so maybe it's even weird to point out a change agent as something specific. Maybe we're just all change agents in our own way. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the idea that you kind of allude to there, which is that, you know, there are a couple of roles in this, like me as someone who wants to see a change or make a change happen. And then, you know, like my manager potentially being an enabler for, for all right. of that. I know you've written a lot before in like, you know, on all kinds of different topics around, you know, that need to kind of like, you know, start together, work together, be joined up. And, you know, often we're talking about that in a kind of solving a problem kind of lens, but it applies here as well, I think. 
like I, I'm curious, you know, on this topic or more broadly, like, you know, what does like starting together really mean for you and kind of how, uh, you know, what does good look like? Yeah, this is, this is something I've been rattling on about for years now. And it, it started with just wanting to get more people together to tackle a problem. And then mm. it morphed into this starting together. And then I started to say, starting together, work together, finish together. But the, the theme there is together. And I think what happens, and, and maybe even especially during this sort of trying time of being more remote for many teams is there's a tendency to be very nervous about getting people together. You know, you, you might have one or two people try to figure out the problem and then craft it. And then they come together with another group of people and then they sort of add more onto it and it goes along. And I think that in general, my bias is to get more people involved earlier. The big challenge, I think, is that that puts a lot of pressure on product managers and other folks to be great facilitators. And you you probably know who I'm talking about, but there was a person at, at Zendesk when we were there called Nishant. And Nishant had this rule that he would spend one hour prepping per person for meetings that were really important, that were bringing mm. lots of people together. <laughs> yeah. And when Nishant told me that, I thought, oh my goodness, that means if we get 15 people together, you're going to spend all this time prepping, like 15 hours to do it. And he was really deliberate about it. So I think that w- when I talk about starting together, I'm talking about getting more diverse perspectives in the room, further upstream, further when that sort of problem is being shaped allowing the space to be more divergent instead of convergent, you know, not just bringing people together to agree on X, Mm. but bringing people to explore what even X should be. And it goes without saying, be interested your thoughts on it. It's all well and good to say that, but you need great facilitation and you need psychological safety and you need a number of other things to make those activities work. Because if you don't do that, uh, these things can go terribly wrong as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- this is pretty current for me. So, you know, the, the group that I work in at Intercom, we've, you know, we've grown rapidly over the last few months. And the interesting thing we've been working through and thinking a lot about recently is, you know, for kind of complex work that we're doing maybe across a team or two, what does being purposeful about collaboration look like? How are the right people involved at the right time? How do we not overwhelm people by having people you know, too involved in all of the little kind of like in the weeds things. Like, do you see a difference in how people approach this when they're kind of like uh, operating at large scale versus in a, I don't know, a three or four person startup and that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely. And I think the thing is people imagine that it's one thing or the other, but when you look at really high performing teams, they make kind of explicit working agreements around this stuff. Mm. And so you might see, for example, a group of 40 people get together for one or two days and then an agreement to kind of branch off and small groups focusing on things together and individuals focusing on things together. And so I think that the trick is not feeling like it has to be one way or the other or one way all the time. Mm. So, you know, you're facing some gnarly architectural problem that really would benefit from two or three people sitting and banging on a whiteboard (laughs) Mm. for a whole day. Oh, okay. That sounds like a good idea. You're right. Not everyone needs to be there, nor would it be fair to them to be Mm. there. But at the same time, you might say, well, okay, these these folks are going to sit down and do some architecting on the whiteboard for three to five hours. What data do they need to make great decisions? Ah, 
a broader group of people has that data. So let's get the broader group of people together for a well-facilitated activity for an hour or two with the explicit agreement that that will get these architects going and doing what they need to do. So I think that people often think that they have to run product development the same way all the time. They need to run all the sprints the same way and all the quarters the same way and all the goals the same way. And in reality, I've never met a team that was just working in one way on everything. There's mm. many shapes of work. <laughs> yeah. So what I would encourage people to do is think very disciplined about thinking about what's the nature of this work, what's the shape of this work, and what collaboration patterns do we need to make it effective without biasing yourself one way to the other. Like if you diverge all the time, you'll drive people crazy. If you converge too early, then you run the risk of taking life out of the effort and making it not very creative. This is the balancing act of creativity. <laughs> yeah. So you have to you have to dance with it, I guess. That sounds weird, but you have to take it in and not try to apply a cookie cutter approach is, is my thinking recently. I don't know if that helps you in your situation, but I think about it a lot. Oh, it does. And, you know, there's uh, one of the things that's been on my mind and it, you kind of triggered the thought again, is this idea around, you know, folks being empowered to think that way. Because, you know, quite often, you know, in like all kinds of companies I've worked at, we give people blunt tools for things like, oh, define a daisy or a racy of like, you know, what who's responsible for which bits. And it's a very blunt tool because it stops you from thinking about those individual interactions and activities and thinking about what might be appropriate, you know? I know exactly what you mean in the sense that, I mean, look, there's nothing wrong with people come up with these models for decisions or whatever, but I was amazed. I was chatting with the team and they showed me some, you know, roles and responsibilities thing. I was looking at it and I was like, oh, okay, all right, this is interesting. And then I asked them the question, hey, with this type of work, what information do you need to make good decisions at the right time and at the right pace? And then they get started. Mm -hmm. listing, listing, listing. Well, we have to know if we've worked with that persona before. We have to know if we were, you know, this is a, a huge like area of technical debt. We have to worry if we're, you know, if this is touching a part of the architecture that we didn't know about on and on and on and on. And so what started out as this list of five roles and responsibilities was a list of a hundred things that they were taking into account for this particular effort. Wow. And so instead of starting with Reese, they should have started with what a solid discussion would have been for that. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but... For every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. 
you just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. I kind of want to jump back a little bit to something, you know, we talked about a second ago, which was, you know, that whole start together, work together, finish together thing. Like, I'm really curious about the finish together part of this. Like for a cross-functional product team, for example, like what does that look like and why is that important? Oh, I haven't worked that one out. That's that's the end of the triumvirate. <laughs> no, what I was trying to get at with Finish Together is this idea of you get this poor team that delivers something and they mark it done. And then a poor marketing team is sitting there trying to market it. <laughs> or mm. they've thrown it over the wall to someone else to do something. And what I was trying to get at with that is that when you're bringing closure to an effort, you really need to think about what you're bringing closure to. And there's a little bit of loss associated when you finish something, right? Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of letting go. And so this is a really important thing to think about for teams where the team is stuck in this endless hamster wheel of shifting all these things, and they never bring closure to the efforts. They sort of never meet with maybe the downstream teams that are responsible for you know, marketing it or supporting it or doing anything. So that's what I was trying to get at with finishing together is, is how do you bring closure to efforts in a way that leave people feeling satisfied or, you know, that they've had an impact. Yeah. So not as well thought out as the starting together and working together, but you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm curious as well, like quite often when we think about these kind of topics, we think in kind of like, you know, B2B or B2C SaaS kind of like product R&D teams, like product managers, designers, engineers, product marketing. Like, do you have any thoughts on kind of thinking beyond that to folks who might work in support or success or in like outbound sales and, and that kind of thing? Like, what does kind of starting together and working together mean when you think about that broader organizational dynamic? Yeah, this is an interesting one because in SaaS especially, I tend to think of the whole company as the product. Mm. <laughs> and so, I mean, I know that Intercom enables you know, support folks and other folks to be amazing, but in some ways your product is the epitome of that, right? You're actually turning these other people into part of the product in a very literal sense mm. <laughs> with what you're doing. And so I tend to think I might be just very utopian in my thinking. But when I look at customer success folks or sales folks, I keep thinking, are they empowered to experiment on how they're working or do they set strategies and can they run experiments and do that? And I think that the reality is for various reasons, we could go on and on discussing it. A lot of those teams are, are not really as empowered as product folks, you know, the designers and the developers are the kind of rock stars of the company. <laughs> and then meanwhile, these customer success folks are out there day in, day out, making customers successful. And so that's my thought. That's, I'm reflecting on what you said. And I think that all these teams, I think, could benefit from working this way. I mm. think that often they're not empowered to do that. And I would love to see that change. And I would love to see situations too, where the idea of, you know, product folks don't know how good they have it sometimes, Right. So when we think about a pod, you know, a cross-functional pod of people, it would be great to extend that. Many companies do it to product marketers, but extend that further to a customer success pod and then some kind of support pod and a documentation pod. Although that's not your sort of full-time team, you know, you don't, it'd be hard to keep all 60 people in your head at all time. 
I think it would benefit, you know, product could kind of lead the way in that sense of reaching out to those groups to think about what it really means to sort of release and support something end to end. So yeah, I think that those folks are capable of it. I think they don't get to do it a lot and they are in the midst of it. Just they're churning out the dollars in one way or another, you know? So I don't know. We have to be uh, empathetic to them, I think, from the product side. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I'm curious as well that, you know, there's this kind of conflict in kind of priorities that you might sometimes see in some companies where, you know, as you say, you know, somebody in sales, for example, is kind of like grinding it out, trying to hit their target for the, for the month or the quarter. And then you've got, you know, some kind of product team R&D kind of reaching out and trying to steal some of their time to do some, you know, what might be perceived as fluffy exploratory <laughs> stuff. How have you seen people kind of like make that work in a, in a, in a really good way? Yeah, I think it, it comes to being intentional. And again, back to great facilitation and batching things up and doing a good activity around it or getting people involved. I mean, the number of, I, I'm as bad as anyone with this. I was just before this call, you know, I tapped one of our customer success folks on the shoulder and say, hey, I'm working on this, you know, capability model. Can you just add a couple of things? So I'm not great at this. <laughs> but but what I should, you know, what I should have done is to be more thoughtful and engage more of those folks in more of a focused activity and frankly, work with managers on their side and other folks to be sure that everyone had this as maybe part of their job description. And so I think that what you can do in many you know, B2B SaaS companies as an example, you know, most people, if they get a little bit of advanced notice, would, would welcome the idea of maybe like a cross-functional group or whatever you want to call it. Spotify called them a guild or something like that. Like seeing if you can figure out how to make it part of their job description for some period of time and then freeing yourself up to do good facilitation and engage them in the activities, just a little bit of forethought can go a long way. And then discipline with the facilitation can go a long way. So one thing that a lot of folks in product don't realize is that people in sales and customer success are always adapting their strategies. They're always eager to kind of understand personas better. They're always eager that they are in a very fluid situation and things are changing pretty rapidly. And you'd be surprised how often the goals of the two groups align, whether it's about learning about personas or thinking about a strategy or trying to figure out where there's friction points. So you'd be amazed how often their thinking is aligned around that stuff. So if you can find the right moment and help carve it out as part of their day job, I think that that's the ultimate thing because those folks are really busy and they're really smart too. So you obviously want to work with them. I, I'm wondering if, I mean, I, I remember you wrote about the product outcomes formula, I think you called it. Yeah. Like I'm wondering if that is, you know, a useful tool to kind of help people think around this kind of stuff and working together in that way. Yeah, I mean, the product outcomes for me is pretty simple, which is like our outcomes are a function of the breadth of the data that we have, you know, the usability of that data, the quality of our insights and the rate of our insights, and then quality and rate of our action. <laughs> hmm. And it's, it's basically saying that at some point you have a constraint somewhere in that system. And so some companies are swimming in data, but it's not very usable. Some companies actually have fairly usable data, but it's pretty siloed and no one can get at it. And some companies have extremely skilled analysts, so the quality is high, but they can't distribute data-informed decision-making. And then still other companies are doing all of that, and they're sitting in a mountain of technical debt, and they can't necessarily act at all. And some companies are shipping way faster than they learn. They've got the shipping thing down, 
just fine, but their product decisions aren't great as they're going through. So you could think about it like that. And back to the thing of sort of starting together and working with these other groups, I think that that it, it is related because this is about you know, where, where can those folks help? Can they provide insights at the right time? Can mm-hmm. they help acting, have higher quality decisions, which would mean kind of getting closer to the problem, fewer proxies is a good way to think of it. And then, you know, from the standpoint of collecting more data, I always believe data is qualitative and quantitative. So that's kind of where interacting with those folks would help. But yeah, I always tell teams to kind of think, you know, the, the constraint will move around. That's the, one of the challenging things about product and life in general. <laughs> Once you've kind of dialed in usable data, it pushes the constraint to the rate of insights. And once you've dialed that in, it pushes the constraint to the rate of action, maybe. And so you're always juggling between those. Before we start to wrap up, John, there's, there's one question I really wanted to ask. Is there any advice you'd give to anyone thinking about either, you know, starting or kind of like moving on in their product management career? Well, I think the general thing is you have to get your reps in. And this is one of the most challenging things for a lot of these really talented folks who are in organizations that don't really have the think big, work small thing worked out, is that they'll work for four years somewhere and then they'll try to get a job somewhere else at maybe a tech company that they think they want to work at. And during the interview process, they will bomb. Mm. right? The, the technology, can you just walk us through, you know, they're looking for behaviors, you know, can you walk us through some decisions and a strategy and what you did and what the outcome was? And they'll say, well, actually I was dealing with so much dysfunction, <laughs> but you don't say that in the interview, you know, so you sort of gasp a little bit and you think about it. And so I think that the most important thing though, is that it doesn't really matter where you're working you should make an effort or try at least to carve out some boundary where you can get the reps in. And the difference is phenomenal. You know, you meet people who like, well, over the last four years, I shipped two things. They took a year at a time. (laughs) And then you meet people who are like, oh yeah, well, I can talk about 10 or 15 key product decisions and loops that we made to do it. So wherever you are, my advice is figure out at the level that's realistic for your org to get those reps in. And this is why I, frankly, I really like working at Amplitude because there are products that help at least make the measurement easier. You know, there's, it might seem dire at the moment, but I, I think you can carve out a place to get your reps in. And I mean by rep from the full cycle, from, you know, getting a sense of what's going on to identifying a leverage point, to thinking about how you'll intervene at that leverage point and with who and the persona, to delivering something and then reflecting on the outcomes and then looping it back into the system. You have to get as many of those reps as possible to get better as a product manager. And in some ways, I feel guilty because I feel at the moment we're swimming under a fire hose of product manager advice. There's so much FOMO. You know, there's so many people thinking, I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be able to consume all these very pristine three-point lists all the time. Mm. I tell them, look, that's because your rate of progress is also determined by your ability to practice. You have way too much knowledge now and not enough skill. <laughs> so you need to figure out how to get loops in and get the reps into practice. So it's, it's a tough thing in many cases, but that's the advice I've been giving lately. That's incredible advice. I love it. To bring the chat to a close, John, um, a couple of very quick questions. I'm curious, what's next for you? Do you have any big plans or projects for this year? Any plans for a follow-up to last call? That's awesome. Yeah, no plans for follow-up to last call at the moment. Um, Good to say that. 
Yeah, this year, you know, at Amplitude, I'm working on this thing called a digital optimization capability model, which is not a maturity model, but is a way for teams to be able to self-assess where they're at in particular kind of journeys, these types of sort of more impact-focused journeys. And that's exciting. It's getting me in front of a lot of teams. And then I think also another big thing on my plate this year is to, I think that often the analytics world and the product world get a little bit divided. And so people see that as, you know, they'll come in and say, well, what should we track? You know, so it's very mm. disconnected from the product world. And so I'm trying to, that's one of my puzzles for this year is to how to bring those together, you know, so that we can talk more about the real world of measurement versus just this uh, hypothetical dream state of analytics. <laughs> so real world product analytics is on my plate for this year too. That's awesome. And you know, lastly, where can our listeners go to keep it with you and your work? Do you want to drop your socials? Yeah, I yeah, John Cuttlefish on Twitter. As a parent, that's pretty as as Matt knows, because I'm usually up at like 3 a.m. being like, hey, how's it going? That's pretty much the best way <laughs> to keep track of things at the moment. You know, I'm not I'm not a professional content creator, so I just use what's easiest and, and Twitter's fairly easy. Um, so yeah, connect with me there or on LinkedIn and and certainly, you know, at Amplitude, we're always eager to chat with people who are grappling with challenges around product and data and stuff. So you could sort of reach me through the Amplitude apparatus as well, just by sort of reaching out to sales or support or something. John, I really enjoyed that chat today. Thank you so much for joining us and spending the time. Uh, it was really great to chat. Sure. Yeah, my pleasure. This was dream. You know, it finally happened. This is great. Not, no more 3 a.m. freakouts, you know, when I DM you about some problem I have. So this it, is great. You can still freak out at 3 a.m. <laughs> there we go. All right. I hope you enjoyed Matt Cropper's conversation with John Cutler. If you did, give it a share on your Twitter or LinkedIn and spread the good product word. That's it for today. I'll be back with you next week for more Inside Intercom. This is Inside Intercom.